Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of December 27, 2013. I'm your host, Michael Welch. On this holiday week edition of the show, we break from our regular format to bring you a special presentation by Chris Hedges. Chris Hedges is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, teacher, and writer. He served for 15 years as a foreign correspondent for the New York Times. He served four of those years as Middle East Bureau Chief before covering the war in the former Yugoslavia as Balkan Bureau Chief and then covered Al-Qaeda in Europe and the Middle East from Paris. Chris Hedges, who holds a Master of Divinity from Harvard Divinity School, has taught at Columbia University, New York University, Princeton University, and the University of Toronto. He currently teaches prisoners at a maximum security prison in New Jersey. He's also the best-selling author of several books, including War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning, which was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award for Nonfiction, American Fascists, The Christian Right, and The War on America, Death of the Liberal Class, and his most recent, Days of Destruction, Days of Revolt, which forms the basis for the talk you're about to hear. Hedges' talk centers on how radical movements have been historically dismantled by the state, including through the institution of the liberal class, which he calls a safety valve for preserving capitalism. A self-described socialist, Hedges launched a lawsuit in 2012 against members of the U.S. government claiming that Section 1021 of the National Defense Authorization Act allowed the president authority to detain suspects indefinitely without habeas corpus. Hedges writes a regular weekly column for truthdig.com. Several of his articles have been posted to the Global Research website. The following presentation was given at the West End Cultural Center in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada on September 21, 2013. CKUW and Global Research would like to thank the West End Cultural Center, as well as Canadian Dimension Magazine and the Uniter Weekly Journal, who sponsored Hedges' visit to Winnipeg and supplied the audio of his talk. Here now is Chris Hedges. Uh, before I begin the talk, I hope you've all been following uh, what's been happening in the United States about Syria, um, because it is an absolutely seminal moment uh, in modern American history, when all of the dead rhetoric of war and all of the standard tactics of manipulation by the war makers fell flat on its face. If you watched what happened when they tried to justify, and if you looked, I don't know if you know, but the idea was to drop several hundred Tomahawk missiles all over Syria. Each Tomahawk missile carries a 1,000-pound iron fragmentation bomb or 166 cluster bombs. Um, so you're talking about massive numbers of civilian dead. Um, the object, of course... Um, uh, being that as the rebel movements were losing, they want to recreate a balance on the battlefield. So as was the policy in the Iran-Iraq war, the Syrians will just tear each other to pieces. That, by the way, is the policy. It has nothing to do with poison gas or human rights or anything else. Um, and so they uh, provided us with the requisite uh, atrocity videos. They uh, warned us that the dictator was going to use the weapons of mass destruction against us if we didn't respond. Uh, they appealed to the noble sacrifice of World War II. Kerry called it a Munich moment and referred to the graves of Normandy, and none of it worked. Uh, it didn't work internationally, and it didn't work domestically. And I think that the moment that we have reached in the United States, which is an important moment, especially for those of us who seek 
to challenge the system is that, as we saw after 10 years of the war in Vietnam, people have woken up to the myth or the lie that they have been told. That while we are making uh, weapons manufacturers like Raytheon or Halliburton, or Halliburton doesn't manufacture but contracts, um, General Dynamics, General Electric, incredibly wealthy. Their stocks, of course, have all quadrupled since 9-11. We are having a debate in the House of Representatives about cutting food stamps. This in a country where 40 million children go to bed every night without enough to eat. Um, And uh, I I think that, that, I mean, something's coming. I know something's coming because it's always the ruling elite that determines the uh, configurations of rebellion. Um, and the inability on the part of the ruling elite to respond rationally to what's happening, uh, the decision not to extend uh, unemployment benefits, the assault on Head Start, the shutter. I live near Philly. I live in Princeton. I think 21 schools were shut. It's insane. Um, and in this sense, Karl Marx was right. Unfettered, unregulated capitalism is a revolutionary force. It has no self-imposed limits. Uh, it commodifies everything. Human beings become commodities. The natural world becomes a commodity that it exploits until exhaustion or collapse. And that is the forces that we are up against. I um, wrote a book a couple years ago, a few years ago now, called Death of the Liberal Class, which started out originally as uh, a book about the press. Um, It was uh, Knopf, which is a big publisher in the States, approached me. Well, the funny part is that they approached the former editor of the Washington Post to write a book about the press, and he didn't want to do it. And then they approached the former editor of the New York Times to write a book about the press, and he didn't want it. And then somebody said, well, let's ask Chris Hedges to write it. I don't know how I got on that list. <laughs> I, I imagine that editor is no longer employed at Knopf. Um, and uh, because the idea that I would write a book that would bear any resemblance to what would have been turned in by the former editor of the Times or the Post... Um, and I turned in my manuscript, and they read it and were appalled, and they hated it. And uh, they said, okay, well, all right, all right, well, we're, we'll publish it, but we're going to assign it to an editor who's going to take out all the negativity. <laughs> I can imagine how that went down. Um, and so I scrambled to find a publisher who would take it, and you get half your advance up front. So I said, just pay Knopf half, you can have the book. And in that... Uh, period of transferring the um, contract from Knopf to uh, Nation Books, I began to reflect that it's not just the press that's collapsed, but all of the pillars of the liberal establishment. The church, which I come out of, my father was a minister, I'm a seminary, finished at Harvard Divinity School. Uh, The Democratic Party, here in Canada, um, you have the equivalent, the Liberal Party. Um, The uh, art, which has become mostly commercialized schlock, um, uh, the university system. And, uh, and what happened? I mean, what happened? How did it happen? And it took me back to World War I. Now, World War I, especially in the United States, was a pivotal moment because on the eve of World War I, believe it or not, in the United States, we had powerful progressive, populist, radical, socialist, um, anarchist, communist movements. And um, 
I think what many people forget is that the labor wars in the United States were by far the bloodiest uh, within any industrialized nation. Hundreds of workers lost their lives. Thousands more were wounded. Tens of thousands uh, were blacklisted, uh, pushed out of their jobs. And um, on the eve of the war, uh, these movements had finally cornered the robber baron class, the Carnegies, the Mellons, the Rockefellers, who had hired their private militias, their gun thugs and Pinkertons, uh, to kill workers. Uh, and there becomes this fascinating intellectual debate. And I went into the um, archives at Princeton University um, where they have all of Wilson's papers and was reading the, the internal debates uh, in the circles of power between Wilson and Walter Lippmann, who is an extremely important intellectual figure uh, for modernity um, and a grand inquisitor type figure, undoubtedly brilliant. And, and his book, Public Opinion, is a kind of blueprint for control. That's where the term uh, or the process of manufacturing consent comes from. When Chomsky and Herman write their book on the press in 1991, they take it from Lippmann's public opinion, the manufacturing consent. And Lippmann argues with Wilson that because there's no support for the war and because Wall Street is essentially shoving the war down the throats of Americans, what happens with the collapse of the Eastern Front uh, and with the collapse of Tsarist Russia is that the Kaiser is able to transfer 51 divisions over to the Western Front. And if you remember, right before the Americans arrived, there's, there was a huge push where they actually broke through and began to gain significant ground. Uh, and Wall Street understood that if the British and the French were defeated, then the massive amounts of loans uh, that they had given to the British and the French would never be repaid. Um, so once again, Wall Street is pushing the hand of an isolationist president who in 1916, when he ran for re-election, as his slogan, his slogan was he kept us out of the war. And Wilson is frantic. You can see it in the, in the dialogues back and forth because he knows the country doesn't support war, doesn't want to go to war. And he, and he wants to use the Espionage Act and the Sedition Act, the harsher forms of control, to essentially keep the populace in line. And Lippmann argues, no, we don't have to use, we'll have to use them against the radicals, against those people who hold out. But we can seduce the population into backing the war effort. We can employ the understanding of crowd psychology pioneered by LeBon, Trotter, and finally Sigmund Freud uh, to... Uh, seduce the masses uh, into getting behind the war effort. And Lippmann wins that argument. And they create the Committee for Public Information, headed by George Creel, former muckraking journalist. Suddenly they have uh, speakers bureaus, 45,000 speakers fanning out across the country. They have their own news division that every day is churning out pro-war stories. Um, and you can't publish in the United States unless you support the war. The masses shuts down for the duration of the war because of it. Appeal to reason. A socialist journal with a fourth highest circulation in the country takes a pro-war stance. Uh, they have their own film division out of Hollywood, which is making movies like The Kaiser, The Butcher of Berlin. Um, and it works. Graphic artists, everything comes to be employed. And when you read Randolph Bourne or Jane Addams, two really great radical figures of the period, their despair is not just how easily the country was seduced behind the war effort, but how 
swiftly the intellectual or dissident class uh, started cheering for the war effort. And I had a personal experience with this, with a Canadian who you might know, uh, Michael Ignatiev, uh, at the start of the Iraq war. Um, I've known Michael for years, and I mean, to be fair, I like Michael. I don't, it's not a personal thing. Um, but on the day Bush invaded Iraq, uh, I was on uh, national public radio on a program called Fresh Air, uh, and I was given my 12 minutes to argue about why we should not go to war with Iraq. And I knew that there would be a counterweight, a counter-response, but I didn't know who it was until I heard it on the radio, and it was Michael. And... Um, that period, and if you had the fear of 9-11 and, you know, playing into it, the collective humiliation of the attacks of 9-11, was similarly a very lonely period to stand up against the war in the United States. Um, the only two times in this country that I have received, um, you know, several death threats were standing up against that war. In fact, when I would come into the New York Times, my phone bank would be full of these absolutely vitriolic messages, anonymous letters. Um, and um, the second time is when I attacked the black bloc. We can talk about that later. Um, but this moment is really important because what happened is you created the first system of modern mass propaganda. And... Once the war was over, all these people went to Madison Avenue and started working on behalf of corporations to upend traditional values about thrift, self-effacement, and instill within us the cult of the self, hedonism, the consumer society, the attempt to identify ourselves with brands. And I think when we talk about you know, American culture at this point, what we're really talking about is corporate culture. We're talking about corporate values that were manufactured assiduously by the public relations industry. And in that shift at the end of the war, you saw the hated Hun become the hated Red instantly. And the way they bridged it was to say that, well, the Germans created Lenin, they backed Lenin, and therefore, I mean, it was sort of um, a series of non sequiturs. Um, and, but then you actually with those movements uh, weakened, you got the most severe repression against um, especially the anarchists uh, with the deportation of Emma Goldman and Alexander Berkman with uh, the shutting down of Appeal to Reason, uh, shutting down of the masses, um, the destruction of the Wobblies by charging this anarcho-syndicalist, great anarcho-syndicalist union. There's a wonderful scene in the labor history of the United States where uh, the... Uh, Wobblies have shut down the port. I think it's in San Francisco. And they are loading all these wobblies from Portland, Oregon, and everything on these old ships to come and reinforce the uh, strikers at the port. And when they get off, all the San Francisco police are waiting there with their batons and cracking them over the heads, screaming, where are your leaders? Where are your leaders? And they're going, we're all leaders. Um, and uh, you got Joe Hill hung in Utah, Big Bill Haywood, uh, again, trumped-up murder charges, flees the country. So the radical movements, which were woven into the fabric of the United States, uh, and as many of you know, after the Haymarket uh, uh, bombings and then after the assassination of McKinley, which purportedly was done by an anarchist, there was severe repression against anarchists in the country. But we had anarchist journals. We had Yiddish anarchist journals in New York City. Um, and so... What happened is that counterweight, those radical, powerful, progressive movements 
which were not as decimated in Canada. I mean, one of the reasons that you have um, universal health care, although I'm watching Harper starve it for funds as he tries to kill it, um, is that your union still had a broad vision for all Canadians. Um, the unions and the groups that we had that had a broad vision, uh, especially the, a socialist vision, were virtually extinguished. And that left the liberal class, which was never designed to be the political left. The liberal class in a capitalist democracy, as Karl Popper writes in The Enemies in the Open Society, is a safety valve. It makes, as Popper points out, incremental or piecemeal reform possible. So that when you have the breakdown of capitalism in the 1930s, you have uh, that's where you can see the liberal class work in a capitalist democracy the way it is designed to work, where it institutes the New Deal. And Roosevelt says, my, my greatest achievement is that I saved capitalism. That's what the liberal class does. It, it sets the acceptable parameters of debate, i.e., you can critique injustices within the system, but you can't go critique the system itself. You can say that this capitalist democracy is not treating the Dust Bowl workers fairly, but you can't go after capitalist democracy itself. You can't go after capitalism. And uh, with the destruction of the radical movements, uh, you saw, uh, uh, in the name of anti-communism, a kind of disemboweling of the very liberal institutions themselves of all those who had a conscience. Now, there's a writer that I like, uh, very much named Dwight MacDonald, who's not read a lot anymore, although any of you who know Chomsky uh, will know that uh, MacDonald, after the war, uh, after World War II, published for five years a magazine called Politics, which never had a circulation above 5,000. There's a wonderful essay by uh, MacDonald called Mass Cult, Mid Cult, where he argues um, that one of the failures of the left is that they try and dumb themselves down to reach a wide popular audience. And he said, that's a mistake. Um, you know, Marshall McLuhan gets it many years later, that, that the medium, you can't let the medium dictate what your message is. And, 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 and if you're going to deal in serious ideas, um, it means that you are probably not going to reach a mass audience. But it, that doesn't matter. It matters who you reach. And who was reading politics assiduously as a young man but Noam Chomsky? And Chomsky credits his political awakening to McDonald's magazine, which was publishing Orwell, Hannah Arendt, Badelheim. Um, and McDonald, when he reflects on that period of World War I, he said that what happened after the war is that we got something new within Western culture. And that was the psychosis of permanent war. And he said none of the political theorists of the 19th century, including Marx, envisioned or coped with the idea of permanent war, i.e. the constant attempt to ferret out internal and external enemies. Indeed, I think I'm not, I don't know Marx as well as I should, but I think the only time Marx really writes about war is in the Franco-Prussian War, in which he hopes the Germans will win because then the worker state will come to fruition even faster. Um, and MacDonald was right, that in an essence with the psychosis of permanent war, you, and, you know, we just changed the paradigm from the war on communism to the war on terror, you, you can get a situation where the masses, through fear, uh, sort of call for their own enslavement. And what happens in the United States after World War II is the uh, last purging in the name of the red hysteria of uh, anybody left within the liberal institution who has any kind of independence. So we lost thousands of high school teachers, 
um, university professors, social workers. It used to be that social workers, the unions, would think of it, organize not always for themselves, but on behalf of their clients. And the way it would work, Ellen Trecker, a historian, wrote two good books about this, is um, you had the high-profile cases, you know, like Charlie Chaplin or Paul Robeson or I.F. Stone, who became a pariah, uh, our greatest, one of our greatest investigative journalists. But most of the cases were completely unseen by the public, and it would, it would, it would consist of the FBI showing up at a high school with a list of six or seven names, no evidence, and those people would not only be removed from their jobs, but they would be blacklisted. And one of the things I did when I taught at the University of Toronto was go find Chandler Davis, um, who spent six months in a federal prison. Uh, because he would not testify or name names to the House Un-American Activities uh, Committee, and he sat in the prison and wrote some obtuse mathematical treatise, which I don't understand, but he, but, but he dedicated it to the federal prison system that, that housed him, clothed him, and fed him while he did his research. Um, now, that was an extremely... Uh, devastating, that final extinguishing of the liberal class, extinguishing of the radical movements. Um, and that's why the United States is such a messed up country. Um, I, um, I teach in a prison and in a, right now on every Thursday night. And um, uh, when you teach in a prison, it's the exact opposite of teaching in a university where you're trying to write cute little course catalog descriptions to entice undergraduates into your class. Um, when you actually write up your course synopsis for the prison authorities, you're trying to make it look absolutely as kind of boring and banal as possible. So the, the one, the class before this, I, I sent in for, to the prison authorities a uh, uh, description that said, well, I want to teach American history and the founding of our nation and about the Constitution and our founding fathers, and, and they approved it. And then I bought, every, I bought every prisoner a copy of Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States. Now, Zinn is a really important historian in the sense that he understood that all of the openings within our democratic system and yours came through movements that never achieved formal positions of power, whether that was the abolitionists who fought slavery, the suffragists, the labor movement, and even the last large movement we had, the civil rights movement. Um, And yet you could argue that until he was assassinated in 1968, the most powerful political figure in the United States was King because when he went to Memphis, 50,000 people went with him. That that the, the founders, especially of American democracy, were terrified of popular direct democracy and created... Uh, all sorts of mechanisms to thwart it, uh, disenfranchising women, uh, African-Americans, Native Americans, uh, men without property, uh, creating the Electoral College, which saw this bizarre uh, situation where Gore wins uh, 500,000 more votes than George W. Bush, and George W. Bush gets appointed president by the Supreme Court. Um, has nothing to do with Ralph Nader. And um, uh, the Senate, which is appointed, And all of the battle has been to open up that space. But all of the mechanisms we had to open up that battle uh, have now been destroyed. And what has been unleashed upon us 
is, as I said when I began, this species of corporate totalitarianism, what the political philosopher Sheldon Wolden calls inverted totalitarianism. And by that he means it's not uh, classical totalitarianism, it doesn't find its expression through a demagogue or a charismatic leader, but through the anonymity of the corporate state. Um, that in classical totalitarian regimes, um, uh, you have a force that overthrows a system uh, and replaces it. In corporate totalitarianism, they pay fealty to the iconography and language of American patriotism, the constitutional electoral politics, and yet internally have seized all the levers of power to render us impotent. Uh, and those forces are global. Um, they are working uh, as fast as they can to destroy your country as they have already largely destroyed mine. Um, and one of the things I was just in Montreal um, uh, speaking uh, a couple months ago to the public sector employees' unions uh, about the right-to-work right laws, which we went through. And uh, I think Canada still has about 36 or 38 percent of your uh, workers are unionized. That, that We never got, even at the height of union activity in the 50s, that was as high as we got. We now have below 12% of our workforce is unionized. Almost all of them are public sector employees and they can't strike, and they are being destroyed through a series of measures, uh, the teachers' unions, through charter schools, um, being decimated. We're now talking about uh, eviscerating our postal service, um, which is also unionized. Um, and uh, and what happened, you know, is that with the death of these radical movements, that severance, especially from labor, from the radical left, which was the goal of the state, um, so that radical labor leaders were especially targeted as being, quote-unquote, communists. Um, and you end up with this distortion in the 1960s where you have the AFL-CIO passing resolutions supporting Nixon's war in Indochina and denouncing the hippies in the street. And this book that uh, Joe Sacco and I spent two years on, Days of Destruction, Days of Revolt, one of the chits, which is written out of the poorest pockets of the United States, in um, uh, one of the chapters is out of West Virginia. And if you went down to the, the coal fields of southern West Virginia in 1912, their hero was Mother Jones. If you go down today, it's... Sarah Palin. Um, and that shows you what's happened. Um, the, the severance of, of, of radical movements from labor, um, the uh, creation of a labor force which uh, uh, essentially becomes a kind of unequal or a junior partner with the corporate state. And you see it, you see it with the bailout in Detroit because the federal government steps into bailout Detroit and they write into the bailout provisions, which the UA, the United Auto Workers Union leadership has to sign on, that they won't strike. And then in that bailout, they reduce the wages of senior auto workers, which are about 75, 76 an hour, to 50, and they allow the companies to hire new workers at $14 an hour. Um, in every single step, the state is dismantling um, all of the mechanisms by which we once protected ourselves from predatory capitalism, including, of course, the rise of the security and surveillance state itself. And what that gave birth to is this faux liberal, this person which, and Bill Clinton becomes the poster child for it, that speaks in that traditional feel-your-pain language of uh, liberalism and yet betrays the very constituency that they purportedly 
uh, are there to defend. So under Clinton, you get NAFTA. You get the omnibus bill, which uh, now we now have uh, the largest prison population in the world, 2.2 million people. And then when you count everybody on parole, um, uh, I think we're up to 7 million people, almost all of them, of course, poor people of color. Uh, it's under Clinton that you deregulate the FCC uh, so that you, you turn over your airwaves to a half dozen corporations, Viacom, General Electric, Rupert Murdoch, News Corp. Um, and then on every channel, every night, you get Kevin O'Leary. You're listening to Chris Hedges on a special holiday edition of the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on our partner radio stations across North America. We are also broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm and podcast at globalresearch.ca. It's under Clinton that you get the destruction of welfare. And under our old welfare system, 70% of the recipients were children. And it's under Clinton that you ripped down the firewalls between commercial investment banks, um, which did not happen in Canada because of Chrétien, um, which is why, you know, one of the part of our financial crisis is that we have over 100 banks every year uh, uh, going under. And um, if you look at what's just happened with the Fed, uh, which is uh, that they were supposed to end the stimulus, but they won't. They won't end it because they know that once they end it, um, uh, there's a, a very real possibility that the game's up, that we go over the – I mean, the system is so distorted that you have corporations like Goldman Sachs essentially being given money at the Fed at 0% interest, and then these financial firms, uh, especially if you're late on your credit cards like I am, can charge you 16% interest. I don't even know what that is. It's not capitalism. I guess it's extortion. Um, the system is so gamed and so criminal and so speculative. Uh, and it's all done by printing endless amounts of money and looting the U.S. Treasury uh, with no regulation or no control. Um, and Clinton, you know, he's not stupid. He, uh, he got corporate money so that by the 1990s, the Democratic Party had fundraising parity with the Republicans, and when Barack Obama ran in 2008, he got more. Now, Obama is out of that Clinton mold. Obama functions as a brand for the corporate state. In the same way that uh, HIV-positive models and people of color were used on billboards by Bennington and Calvin Klein to give their products a kind of uh, you know, associated with a kind of risque lifestyle and progressive politics. That, that's what Obama, who came out of the political machine, that was his role. Uh, and it worked. Um, and that's why when he was elected, Advertising Age gave the Obama campaign their top annual award, which was Marketer of the Year. Um, he beat Nike, Apple, Zappos, because the professionals knew precisely what he'd done. And uh, Obama's assault on civil liberties is, in fact, far more egregious than those carried out by George W. Bush. So we get the FISA Amendment Act, which retroactively – and why was it retroactive? Well, because after 9-11, when Verizon and all these companies turned over all our phone records to the government, they were getting sued. And um, – and they knew they'd lose, at least if the courts were going to rule based on the Constitution. 
And so they showed up in Washington with suitcases full of money, and they got retroactive immunity written into the bill uh, to protect themselves from what they've already done. Uh, uh, so we're, you know, and we now know from Snowden, we're the most spied upon, monitored, photographed, eavesdropped population in human history, dwarfing anything that the Stasi state did when I covered it in East Germany. Uh, we have the interpretation of the authoriz- uh, 2001 Authorization to Use Military Force Act as, in the eyes of the executive branch, giving them the right to assassinate uh, anyone around the world, drop kill lists, including American citizens. Uh, the use of the Espionage Act seven times now. Snowden's been charged with the Espionage Act. Now, the Espionage Act is the equivalent of our Foreign Secrets Act. It, it was designed to prosecute people who gave sensitive information to those who were defined as the enemy. Um, it was used three times. It was written in 1917, uh, passed in 17 by Wilson, uh, and between 17 and 2009, when Obama took power, was used three times against whistleblowers, people who attempted to tell the public about malfeasance, about the inner workings of power, uh, uh, the first time being against Daniel Ellsberg. Obama has used it seven times, virtually shutting down any kind of... Uh, uh, looking or inspection into uh, how power works and the persecution of uh, people of conscience like Chelsea Manning um, uh, or Julian Assange uh, or Snowden um, is terrifying. I speak as a journalist because if you don't have a Manning or you don't have an Assange or you don't have a Snowden, um, you don't have a free press. Um, there becomes no mechanism... by which you can hold power accountable. Uh, And that's all under Obama. And then, of course, as Chris mentioned, um, the National Defense Authorization Act, which overturns 150 years of domestic legislation, which had prohibited the military from carrying out domestic policing. Um, And the language of Section 1021 is that uh, those who can be picked up by the military, we're talking about extraordinary rendition on the streets of our cities, can be picked up by the military, uh, and and these are um, uh, suspected persons who substantially support. Now, that's not a legal term. That's not materially support. Substantially support al-Qaeda, the Taliban, or something called associated forces. Again, another nebulous term. Um, They can be picked up, um, held in military facilities, including in our offshore penal colonies, and stripped of due process, and they will remain there in the language of this section until the end of hostilities. Um, And we did sue in the Southern District Court of New York. Um, I sued, Chomsky joined me, Ellsberg joined me, uh, and we did win, as Chris said. Um, And the reaction of the Obama administration was quite frightening. We knew they'd appeal, but they didn't just appeal. The day Judge Forrest, Catherine Forrest, issued her ruling, they went to her chambers and said, We need you, in the name of national security, to immediately issue a temporary injunction, meaning put the law back into effect until the next court up before the Supreme Court, the Second Circuit, can hear the case. Now, Judge Forrest, to her credit, refused. So they called an emergency hearing that 9 a.m. the next Monday morning at the appellate court and put in the same request. Unfortunately, the appellate court granted their request. Now, why? Why were they so aggressive? Why did they have to put that law back into effect immediately? And the supposition that I and the lawyers make is that, is that they're already using it, that there are uh, most likely 
dual Pakistani U.S. nationals in places like Bagram. Because if they were holding U.S. citizens and Judge Forrest's injunction was allowed to stand and they were denying those citizens due process and anybody ever found out about it, they would be in contempt of court. And unfortunately in July, the um, Second Circuit ruled, uh, overturned Judge Forrest's decision, and we are now filing papers uh, to attempt to um, take it to the Supreme Court. Uh, I don't know if we'll make it. They may not take it. They get about uh, 8,000 requests a year. They take about 80 to 100 cases a year. Um, if they don't take it, then the law stays uh, in, in effect. Um, and I think that, that all of what's happening here is not somehow confined to the United States. It's about the same systems of power. It's about corporate neo-feudalism. Uh, it's about creating oligarchic systems, global oligarchic systems, where workers in Canada and workers in the United States are told that they must be competitive in a global marketplace, which means being competitive with sweatshop workers in Bangladesh who make 22 cents an hour or prison labor in China. That's the world we're creating, a world of masters and serfs. Uh, and, and these people know what's coming. Uh, both in terms of the ecological crisis and in terms of the, the economic crisis. And they are preparing. That's what the whole security and surveillance apparatus is about. Uh, it's about getting ready. Um, and at this point, because uh, our, especially in the United States, our radical movements are broken, our liberal class has been uh, domesticated, pacified, destroyed, sold out, whatever you want to call it. I mean, the idea that the Democratic Party could even be called a liberal party in Europe, the Democratic Party would be a far-right party. Um, and, uh, and that means that for those of us who care about especially what's happening to the next generation, to my children, to those who come after us, it's imperative that we begin to stand up and fight back. Uh, and it's not going to come through the electoral process. It's not going to come by appealing to those in power because um, the people who run the show are sitting on the boards of corporations like ExxonMobil and TransCanada and Goldman Sachs. Um, there is no way within the system to vote against their interests. Um, when I began this book with Sacco, uh, it was always called Days of Destruction, Days of Revolt. Um, but revolt was conjecture. It was the understanding that because unfettered corporate capitalism has no self-imposed limits, no built-in limits. It would push and push and push until there was a reaction. And at the start of that, uh, uh, or towards the end of that book, we saw the rise of Occupy Wall Street uh, and Zuccotti, um, where I spent significant amounts of time. And, um, uh, and I think that, the, that it rattled the state tremendously. And the state was quite frightened. Um, I'm just going to close before we go to questions with a little passage from uh, the book from that moment. Uh, it, Cornell West and I uh, held a people's hearing of Goldman Sachs in Zuccotti Park. Um, we brought in uh, high school teachers who had been lost their jobs and single mothers who'd been evicted from their homes because of foreclosures or bank repossessions. And then we, several hundred of us, marched on Goldman Sachs, where um, we were arrested. Um, and that this is this little passage is from that moment. Faces appeared to me moments before protesters from Occupy Wall Street and I were arrested on a windy November afternoon in front of Goldman Sachs. 
They were not the faces of the smug Goldman Sachs employees who peered at us through the revolving glass doors and lobby windows, a pathetic collection of middle-aged fraternity and sorority members. They were not the faces of the blue uniform police with their dangling plastic handcuffs or the thuggish Goldman Sachs security personnel whose buzz cuts and dead eyes reminded me of the Stasi. They were not the faces of the demonstrators around me, the ones with massive student debts and no jobs, the ones weighed down by their broken dreams, the ones whose anger and betrayal triggered the street demonstrations and occupations for justice. They were not the faces of the onlookers, the construction workers, who seemed cheered by the march on Goldman Sachs or the suited businessmen who did not. They were faraway faces. They were the faces of children dying. They were tiny, confused, bewildered faces I had seen in the southern Sudan, Gaza, the slums of Brazzaville, Nairobi, Cairo, Delhi, and the wars I covered. They were faces with large, glassy eyes above bloated bellies. They were the small faces of children convulsed by the ravages of starvation and disease. I carry these faces. They do not leave me. I look at my own children and cannot forget them, these other children who never had a chance. War brings with it a host of horrors, but the worst is always the human detritus that war and famine leave behind. The small, frail bodies whose tangled limbs and vacant eyes condemn us all. The wealthy and the powerful, the ones behind the glass at Goldman Sachs, laughed and snapped pictures of us as if we were an odd lunchtime diversion from commodities trading, from hoarding and profit, from the collective sickness of money worship, as if we were creatures in a cage, which in fact we soon were. Goldman Sachs Commodities Index is the most heavily traded in the world. The financial firm hoards futures of rice, wheat, corn, sugar, and livestock and jacks up commodity prices by as much as 200% on the global market so that poor families can no longer afford basic staples and literally starve. Hundreds of millions of poor in Africa, Asia, the Middle East, and Latin America do not have enough to eat in order to feed this mania for profit. The technical jargon learned in business schools and on trading floors effectively masks the reality of what is happening, murder. The cold, neutral words of business and commerce are designed to make systems operate, even systems of death, with a ruthless efficiency. The people behind the windows and those of us with arms locked in a circle on the concrete outside do not speak the same language. Profit, trade, speculation, globalization war, national security. These are the words they use to justify the snuffing out of tiny lives, acts of radical evil. The glass tower before us is filled with people carefully selected for the polish and self-assurance that come with having been formed 
in institutions of privilege. Their primary attributes are a lack of consciousness, a penchant for deception, aggressiveness, a worship of money, and an incapacity for empathy or remorse. It is always the respectable classes, the polished Ivy League graduates, the prep school boys and girls who grew up in Greenwich, Connecticut, or Short Hills, New Jersey, who are the most susceptible to evil. To be intelligent, as many are, at least in a narrow, analytical way, is morally neutral. These respectable citizens are inculcated in their elitist ghettos with values and norms, including pious acts of charity used to justify their privilege and a belief in the innate goodness of American power. They are trained to pay deference to systems of authority. They are taught to believe in their own goodness, unable to see or comprehend, and are perhaps indifferent to the cruelty inflicted on others by the exclusive systems they serve. And as norms change, as the world is steadily transformed by corporate forces into a small cobble of predators and a vast herd of human prey, these elites seamlessly replace one set of values with another. These elites obey the rules, they make the system work, and they are rewarded for this. In return, they do not question. We seem to have lost, at least until the advent of the Occupy Wall Street movement, not only all personal responsibility, but all capacity for personal judgment. Corporate culture absolves all of responsibility. This is part of its appeal. It relieves all from moral choice. There is an unequivocal acceptance of principles such as unregulated capitalism and globalization as a kind of natural law. The steady march of corporate capitalism requires a passive acceptance of new laws and demolished regulations, of bailouts in the trillions of dollars and the systematic looting of public funds, of lies and deceit. The corporate culture epitomized by Goldman Sachs has seeped into our classrooms, our newsrooms, our entertainment systems, and our consciousness. This corporate culture has stripped us of the right to express ourselves outside of the narrow confines of the established political order. We are forced to surrender our voice. Corporate culture serves a faceless system. It is, as Hannah Arendt wrote, the rule of nobody, and for this very reason, perhaps the least human and most cruel form of rulership. Those who resist, the doubters, outcasts, artists, renegades, skeptics, and rebels rarely come from the elite. They ask different questions. They seek something else, a life of meaning. They have grasped Immanuel Kant's dictum, if justice perishes, human life on earth has lost its meaning. And in their search, they come to the conclusion that, as Socrates said, it is better to suffer wrong than to do wrong. This conclusion makes a leap into the moral. It refuses to place a monetary value on human life. It acknowledges human life, indeed all life, as sacred. And this is why, as Arendt points out, the only morally reliable people are not those who say, this is wrong, or this should not be done, 
but those who say, I can't. The greatest evildoers are those who don't remember because they have never given thought to the matter. And without remembrance, nothing can hold them back, Arendt wrote. For human beings, thinking of past matters means moving in the dimension of depth, striking roots, and thus stabilizing ourselves so as not to be swept away by whatever may occur, the zeitgeist or history or simple temptation. The greatest evil is not radical. It has no roots, and because it has no roots, it has no limitations. It can go to unthinkable extremes and sweep over the whole world. There are streaks in my lungs, traces of the tuberculosis I picked up around hundreds of dying Sudanese during the famine I covered as a foreign correspondent. I was strong and privileged and fought off the disease. They were not and did not. The scars I carry within me are the whispers of these dead. They are the faint marks of those who never had a chance to become men or women, to fall in love and have children of their own. I carried these scars to the doors of Goldman Sachs. I placed myself at the feet of these commodity traders to call for justice because the dead and those dying in slums and refugee camps across the planet could not make the journey. I see their faces. They haunt me in the day and come to me in the dark. They force me to remember and they make me choose sides. Thank you. Chris Hedges gave his talk to a packed audience at the West End Cultural Center in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. A question and answer period followed Mr. Hedges' talk. Here is a sample from that discussion. I'm wondering if you think it's likely that student unions in Canada and the United States can play a a big role in revitalizing uh, radical leftism and dissent against unfettered corporate You know, I noticed in the United States that the schools are split. And I've taught at some of these elite schools like Princeton that where you have people at places like Princeton uh, not only probably are the 1% but want to remain part of the 1%. Um, And that's why, for instance, it was very hard to get any students at New York University or NYU or Columbia actively involved within the Occupy movement. But if you went out to community colleges or I spoke at Youngstown State where you have people whose parents have been laid off and lost jobs, they've been laid off, they've taken out tremendous student loans in a desperate gamble to go back to college in the hopes that they'll be... They are asking the right kinds of questions. So the radical student movement is not going to come out of the elite schools. Harvard University um, graduates 49% of its class into the financial service sector. And that doesn't count all the ones who go to law school and become corporate lawyers. And Princeton's not far behind. That's what they do. They service, um, they service Wall Street. Uh, you know, one of the sort of ironies of Obama's Booker T. Washington message to the American poor is... Uh, 
that he says, well, you got to get an education. You got to. I never figured that out because uh, the people with the best education, like Larry Summers, are the people who got us into this mess. The problem wasn't education. The problem was greed. And and these elite institutions are are you know complicit, completely complicit. I mean, you know, this is obscene, this $6.5 billion fundraising campaign for Harvard. Um, Princeton is awash in the same kind of money. And they function as corporations. I mean, you look at the trustee boards of these universities, and, and half of their trustee boards should be in jail. They're all hedge fund managers. I mean, they should all be in prison. And, and uh, so I don't hold out much hope for the students in the elite institutions. It's those students who didn't have that kind of privilege and financial resources to go to those institutions that I do think are going to begin asking the right questions. And one of the things that's distressing is watching how, you know, personal debt, $1 trillion of personal debt is all student loans, uh, largest personal debt in the country. Um, I lived in France for a while, and I told my son who's now living in France, um, I said, look, you know, can you imagine if Sarkozy or somebody got up and announced that uh, French university students would have to pay $50,000 a year to go to college? They'd shut the damn country down. Um, but, you know, they just, we, you, we roll over like sheep. And when I taught at UT, I was a little distressed to find out how many of those students also had were amassing really crippling loans. I mean, the Canadian system, which had once been a kind of model uh, at the both at the uh, you know at the high school and but also at the university level is is being distorted and destroyed in the same way the American system is, but because it's the same forces behind it. Sir, go ahead. I was just wondering if you could explain the Second Amendment and the the NRA lobby. Uh, we think we understand it here, and we want to know how it affects us all. We don't really understand it, I don't believe. Well, let me get right down to what it's about, and it's about black people. Um, it's about white bigots and racists wanting to have weapons because they're scared of black people. Um, that you really, Because we've criminalized poor black people can't get guns. It's been criminalized. And most of the yahoos walking around with semi-automatic weapons are alienated white males. Um, it, it uh, you see with the collapse of the economy in the rural South, this tremendous rise in neo the neo Confederate movement. I was in Montgomery, Alabama, not long ago. You f drive into Montgomery, and there's one of those gigantic uh, Confederate flags. I mean, one of these you know football stadium sized flags on this gigantic flagpole put up by the Sons of the Confederacy. There are Confederate monuments all over the place, and they had just had a reenactment of uh, Jefferson Davison, he's the president of the Confederacy, his inaugural with a bunch of, like, overweight white guys and somebody dressed up like Jefferson Davis. It's kind of crazy. It reminds me of Yugoslavia, that with the meltdown of Yugoslavia, people retreated into this ethnic nationalism. Um, and... Uh, I think the other important point, I spend a lot of time in the Harper's, in the Walrus story talking about it, but violence in the United States, we don't have a revolution, except for Thomas Paine, who was British anyway, we don't really have revolutionary ideologies. We never 
produced a Gramsci or a, a Lenin or a Marx. Um, our violence is right-wing vigilante violence. So in the United States, you have this weird phenomena where throughout our history, the government has always been quite willing to have arms handed out to the citizenry because uh, those with the arms have turned on... Um, uh, on movements that have defied the state. They have quite actively been used by the state. So, for instance, when you have coal miners, 10,000 coal miners at Blair Mountain rising up uh, in an armed rebellion, they raise vigilante gangs initially to fight them. Uh, and, and that's my fear, that as the society breaks down, they will turn to uh, the neo-Confederate, Christian right, armed, white groups... Uh, and use them as they have throughout the past. Um, I mean, that's a short answer. Um, but, you know, um, America, if you, if you scratch the surface of America, we are, in a, you know, a really, a, you know, I mean, we have an empire because we produce the most efficient killers on the planet. That was Pulitzer Prize-winning author Chris Hedges speaking in Winnipeg September 21, 2013 at the West End Cultural Center. Once again, we would like to thank the West End Cultural Center, the Uniter Weekly Journal, and the Canadian Dimension Magazine for sponsoring this event and providing the audio from the talk. To download your own copy of the talk, go to globalresearch.ca, click the tab for Global Research News Hour, and search for Chris Hedges in the show archive. This is the concluding episode of the Global Research News Hour for 2013. We hope you'll join us in the new year for more cutting and incisive analysis of important global events. The music for this week's broadcast was from the song Marooned by Pink Floyd. I'm series producer and host Michael Welch. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.